Well, for the past several weeks, we've been looking at common questions that people have about the Bible in our series, Bible Basics. Uh, Questions like, what is this thing exactly? What is it? Uh, Who wrote it? Can we trust it? What should we do with it? And what I've tried to do as we've gone through the series is, is point you to how the Bible itself answers those questions about itself. Um, you know, what, what does it claim to be? What does it say about who wrote it? Uh, what does it say, what claims does it make about its own trustworthiness? And the reason for that as I've tried to explain, is if you're going to make a good decision about what the Bible is and, and um, what place it should have in your life, you should know, you need to know what the Bible says about itself, what its own claims are. Because it claims to be, as we've seen, God's message. It's from God. God is the source. It's God's message and it's written down for our good written down for our good. That's what the Bible claims. You know, that is what Jesus, we have, we have good, solid reasons for believing that that is what Jesus taught. That is what his uh, eyewitnesses taught. That's what the first Christians all believed. And that, frankly, that's why we as a church, we make this the basis of all that we teach, of all that we believe as a church. So today we're going to wrap things up, and I, what I want to do is, is focus on the last part of that statement, uh, God's message written down for our good. What good is it exactly? How is it good for you to have a Bible? Have you thought about that? What good does it do you to have a Bible? To read it, so we've talked about this challenge we've had for the past month, you know, bring it, read it, study it, uh, receive its message. Well, how is it good for you to do that? How is it good for you to, to get the message out of the pages, so to speak, and into your life? Uh, I said when we started this that the goal of addressing these questions was not just to get some, you know, new facts and information in our head. The goal was actually to help you and to help me interact with the Bible better, personally, uh, interact with its message and respond to it. We talked about that last time, you know, what, what kind of response should we have toward Scripture? And if we respond positively, well, what's that going to do for you? What good is that? So I want to look today at a passage that answers that question, and it's in Psalm 19. So if you have a Bible... Uh, you can turn there. Psalms is kind of an easy book to find. It's pretty much right in the middle of the Bible. You can kind of just let your Bible fall open in Psalms. Uh, find the 19th Psalm. And Psalm 19 is all about the goodness of God's Word. The goodness of God's Word. Now, that's not what it seems to be when you first start reading it. Okay, so let's begin We're going to start at verse 1. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, 
psalm was a song, a, a poetic song. And it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words, whose voice, that is the heaven's voice, is not heard. Their measuring line goes through goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, the heavens, He, God, has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So it starts out talking about creation. This is really interesting that our Unreached People group for today, the Kogi, uh, talking about what they think about, you know, creation and, and uh, how at this point they don't yet have the Word of God. Uh, this psalm has something to say about that. So it starts out talking about creation, and it tells us that creation, God's creation, has a message, and uh, it's... The heavens are declaring the, the, the stars, the sun, and they're telling us something about God, but they're doing it without words. That was the point of the verse uh, 3. There's no speech, there's no words, there's, their voice is not heard. But when you look up at the sky, when it's not cloudy and not raining, and you see those stars, and maybe you can think of a time when you've actually been out someplace remote, away from the city lights, and you see those stars, or when the sun comes up, it is, it's, it's giving us this message, it's declaring a message about God, and what it's telling us is, there is a powerful creator who is immeasurably great. But it's a non-verbal message. It's a non-verbal declaration. And so, because it's non-verbal, that's really all it can tell us. That there is a Creator. But to know more about this Creator, to know who He is and what He's like, we need a verbal message. We need words. We need words we can understand. We can we can hear or we can read and, and we can trust. And that, according to the psalm, is exactly what we have in Scripture, in the Bible, in God's message written down for our good. Okay, so you pick it up at verse 7. And it says, The law, the Torah of the Lord, is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, bringing joy to the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. 
Who can discern his, his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. See, this is, a, this is a psalm, this is a poem, this is a song about how good, how good God's Word is. And how good it is for us. It's got all these words, you know, these different words describing Scripture and the great qualities as it is the Torah of the Lord, the, the instruction of the Lord is perfect, it revives the soul, it's sure, reliable, it, it gives wisdom, it brings joy to the heart. All these wonderful qualities he ascribes to Scripture, to the Bible. In fact, he says, the Bible's so good for us, it's more valuable than a big pile of pure gold. That's what he says. So here's a, I've got a slide for you. That is uh, a little portion of the gold vault at the Federal Reserve Bank in New York City. Anybody been there? No, they won't let you in there. You, you, you've never been there. Uh, I, I watched a little YouTube video on what they had to do just to get pictures and, and, and how to get in there, and you, you're not getting it, believe me. So that's what much fine gold looks like. And you know, that's just one, that's like one little nook in there. There's many, many more. Each one of those bars weighs about 25 pounds and is worth you know, based on the market, around $500,000. Yeah, just do the math. Okay, that's just, that's just a little piece of it, okay? Do you know what's far more valuable than that? If, if we're thinking rightly, if we're attributing to things their actual value, you know what's more valuable than that, that whole vault? this, if we're thinking rightly. Listen to this quote from John Piper. He says, if you have a choice between the Word of God and gold, choose the Word of God. If you have a choice between the Word of God and much gold, choose the Word of God. If you have the choice between the Word of God and much fine gold, Choose the Word of God. The point is plain. The benefits of knowing and doing the Word of God are greater than all money can buy. Say that one more time. See, this is so, this is so, this is a stretch for us because we're so used to having Bibles. We get by, I got, I don't, can't even tell you how many Bibles I've got in my office. You know, you can get one on your, your cell phone and and it's free, and yeah, it's just so easy to have a Bible. And I think because it's so easy, we just tend to just, you know, take it for granted. But imagine if you didn't have one, 
And not just that you personally don't have one, but there isn't one. There's no Bible, and you've never heard of it. You don't know its message. You don't know anything about Jesus. You don't know what he came to do. You got nothing to tell you about God. He says, the point is plain. The benefits of knowing and doing the Word of God are greater than all money can buy. So, if you are tempted to read the stock market page before you read the Bible in the morning, remind yourself, this is not shrewd behavior. It's like the child who chooses the penny over the dime because it's bigger. Adults look on and shake their heads and try to teach children how to see what is really more valuable. That is no doubt the way the angels in heaven look at childish businessmen who study the stock page before they study the Bible. It's more desirable. More to be desired than much fine gold, sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. I don't know how the poet could say it any more strongly. God's Word is good. It's good. It's good for you. Why? Why? Why is it more desirable than gold? Why is it sweeter than honey? What's it good for? Here's the answer. It's good for knowing God. That's what it's good for. It's good for knowing God. When all the questions about the Bible, who wrote it, is it reliable, once you get all that settled, what makes the Bible valuable, what makes it sweet, what makes it good for you, is this. In its pages, we encounter God. We encounter God, the God who made us. We meet God Himself. That's what it's all about. Knowing God personally. Knowing God personally. See, we don't want to miss this. We don't want to get this wrong. You know, it would be a big mistake to read the psalm and go, man, this guy's really excited about the Bible. He's just super excited about it. He's more excited about this book than Harry Potter fans are about Harry Potter books. That's amazing. As if, as if what he's excited about is the book itself. You know, it's just the book, period. No, that's not it. The guy's not worshiping the Bible. He's worshiping God. The goodness of the book reflects the goodness of the one who gave the book, the one who wrote the book. See, the law of the Lord is perfect because God is perfect. The, law, the testimony of the Lord is sure. The testimony of the Lord is reliable because God is reliable. This book is good because in it we come to know the one who is good. That's what it's good for. It's good for knowing God. Now let me show you why, you know, where I'm getting that, why that's what I believe is the point of this psalm. Okay? A couple things. We'll start here. Did you notice that in verses 7 through 9, did you see that word, Lord, Repeated six times. Do you see how the word looks a little unusual because it's printed in small caps? Go ahead and bring that up. Yeah, just click. Nope, that wasn't it. <laughs> it's coming. Keep going. Keep going. There. Okay, you see it? 
Okay, you see it there? Lord in all small caps. It's like, what is that? Well, the reason it's printed that way is because it's not actually the word Lord. It's kind of weird, isn't it? Uh, The Hebrew word for Lord is the word Adonai. And when you just see Lord written out in regular letters, uh, that's that's, uh, what it is. But here it's not that. This is actually, that represents in the Hebrew the word Yahweh, which is the name God revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai, the name by which he was to be called his personal name, his word of relationship. Now you say, well, okay, well, why don't they just do that? Why don't they just print Yahweh? Believe me, I wish they would. It's personally a frustration to me that they don't. It's a long story as to why they do it that way, but so be it. The thing you need to know is every time you see that word Lord in all caps like that, that's actually God's name, Yahweh. You say, well, so what? What difference does it make? Okay, go back to verse 1 of Psalm 19, and notice it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. And there, the word God, Elohim, that's the generic word to describe God. That's, that'd be like the word man or woman or, or teenager. Uh, it's general. It tells us something. You know, if you, you say, well, Scott's a man. Okay, well, that doesn't tell you much. It just tells you what kind of being I am. But there's nothing personal there. And that's the point. And this is in the section of the psalm that's, that's giving us the message of God's creation that God exists, that He's powerful, that He's wise. That is the message of God's creation. Now, it's true. It's a true message, but it's a nonverbal message. And because it's a nonverbal message, it's non-personal. Okay, it tells you that God's real. It tells you, you know, you you look up at the stars and you go, wow, God's way bigger than I am. And God's way more powerful than I am. And he's a lot smarter than I am. So it tells you something about God, but that's about it. Then you get down to the second part of the psalm, beginning in verse, uh, was it seven? And there it starts talking about God's Word, His verbal communication, and now it's personal. Now it's not the law of God, the the Torah of God, the precepts of God. It's the law of Yahweh, the testimony of Yahweh, the precepts of Yahweh. Yahweh is God's name. It's a word of relationship. And that's the point. That's the point. The the message of God's word is that God is a person. And we can have relationship with him. God's a person. He's someone you can know. In fact, he's someone you must know. And then look what happens when you get down to the third section of the psalm, beginning at verse 11. Look at this. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. You see the shift? He's not talking about creation. He's not talking about the Bible. 
He's talking to God. Person to person. And then he prays. He says, declare me innocent. In other words, forgive me. Forgive me of my hidden faults. Then he says, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. See, this isn't a song anymore about how awesome the Bible is. This is a song from David's heart to God. It's an expression of relationship. He's saying, oh God, oh Yahweh, God of Israel, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who made Himself known, the God who rescued His people from Egypt, the God who gave us the truth about who He is and and how, and He created, He established this law and this tabernacle so we could these sacrifices so we could enter into worship and we could know Him. He says, Oh, Yahweh, help me, forgive me, protect me, guide me, accept me. Okay, think about it. Where did he get the idea that he could do that? Where did he get the notion that he could relate to God like that. Where? Where did he get the idea that God, the creator of this vast universe, would even care what he thinks about anything? Where did he get this idea that God would even listen to him? That God would forgive him? That God would help him? Where did he get that? Well, he didn't get it from the stars. He didn't get it from watching a sunrise or sunset because you can't get that from creation. You can look at the stars all night long and they won't tell you a thing about God's grace, about God's mercy, about God's heart, about His salvation. David didn't learn those things from creation. See, and that's... That's one of the problems. Sometimes you run into people and they say, you know, I don't see any need for, for church, you know, going in a room and hanging out with these people and, you know, listening to some preacher drone on and on. <laughs> I know that's what people think. <laughs> they say, you know, I just, I just like going out in creation. I like communing with God in nature. Well, hey, I think it's great. I enjoy that myself. I enjoy communing with God in nature. But the thing is, if that's all the communing with God you do, you don't know much about God. You don't know what you need to know about God. You're not able to really worship God as who He is because you don't know Him. It's, it's, we don't get that truth about who God is, what His character is, what his, his desires are, what He wants for our life, how we are to live in relationship with Him, how we're to relate to other people. You don't get that from looking at a tree or a lake. It's through God's Word that we come to know Him. That's where David learned that. 
He learned it from God's message written down for his good. The message that God spoke through people under the guidance of his Holy Spirit. See, that's the point. That's the point of God's message written down for our good. The point is to bring us into that kind of relationship with him. Where we come to know him, as David says, my rock, my redeemer, my rock, my redeemer. Do you know him that way? Not just God. Can you say to him, O Yahweh, O God of heaven and earth, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you are my rock. You are my redeemer. Let's think about that a little bit. What does that mean? What does it mean to have that kind of a relationship with God where you know Him as your rock and your redeemer? I just want to explore that a little bit. One at a time. First, knowing God as your rock What does that mean? That means you rely on Him for your security. He is the one you rely on ultimately for your security. He's your rock, your stable foundation. And you're relying on Him as opposed to relying on, I don't know, much fine gold. If you've got a gold vault, you're relying on God for security instead of that. Or, or relying on a good job or a well-funded retirement plan or a security system or on some human relationship that makes you feel safe. Now, there's nothing wrong with gold and jobs and, and you know, retirement plans and relationships that you, know, you find some safety in. But see, those must never become a substitute for God. The Bible word for that is called idolatry. And idolatry is when we take a good thing and we turn it into an ultimate thing. And we look to that thing, that, that created thing, to give us something that we can only really get from God. See, only God is big enough to give us the security that we need to build our lives on. Look at Psalm 20, verse 7. He says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of Yahweh our God. All right, well, you're probably not tempted to trust in a chariot or a horse. Uh, That's kind of the old school equivalent of, I don't know, an alarm system or a gun or something. So you're probably not tempted to trust in horses and chariots, but what are you tempted to trust in for your ultimate source of security? What are you trusting in as the, the foundation, the bedrock of your life to hold you up when everything else fails? See, if it's money or investments or your house or your alarm system or your parents or your marriage or your own strength, your own ingenuity, if you make anything less than God the ultimate foundation of your life, ultimately it's going to fail at some point. It's not a matter of if, it's just when. He's the only rock that will never let you down. He's the only rock that will never fail. You, you build your life on Him, and that is, He is the bedrock stability. 
But here's the thing. To build your life on Him, you have to not build it on something else. What Jesus said in Matthew 7.24, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, everyone who hears these words of mine, this is Jesus speaking, and does them, everyone who hears these words and trusts me enough to do what I say will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And that's the problem with anything else we build our life on that isn't God for our ultimate source of security. It's sand. It's going to fail eventually. And in this book, God has told us how, how to build our lives on him. How to know him as your rock. And then, knowing God as your redeemer. What does that mean? That means relying on him for your ultimate approval. Your ultimate approval. We all want to be approved by somebody whose opinion we really value. Someone who matters to us. We want somebody like that who will look at us and say, yes, acceptable, (laughs) good enough. Yes, I accept you. I approve of you. Uh, You know, that might just be your own opinion of yourself, but most of us want somebody else's approval too. So friends, parents, boyfriend or girlfriend, spouse, somebody. Somebody who looks at us and says, you're, you're good enough for me. Now, of course, what ultimately matters is being good enough for God. We know that deep down inside. This book tells us that. That's, that's whose ultimate approval matters. Uh, The problem is we also know deep down inside that we're not good enough for God. We know that, and the book tells us that too. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, and David feels this. You can see this in the psalm. He feels it in his own heart. He says, Who can discern his own errors? Who even knows? You know, declare me innocent of hidden faults. He knows he has things that are messed up about him. He doesn't even know what they are. You know, sometimes somebody will say, yeah, I, I realize I'm really messed up. I, I know how messed up I am. Really? I don't think so. I don't think anybody knows how messed up they really are. I know I don't. We all have hidden faults. Then he says in verse 13, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. So what's he talking about? What's a presumptuous sin? That's something you know is wrong and you do it anyway. And he sees that tendency. He says, keep me from that. I know I'm capable of doing things I know are wrong. We all have that problem. We all do things we know God would not approve of. And yet we need his approval. We're doomed without his approval. So how do you become good enough for God? Ah, the good news. You trust him as your redeemer. You trust Him as your Redeemer, the one who rescues you, the one who frees you from all of your wrongs, the ones you know about and the ones you don't even know about. But to trust Him as your Redeemer, that means you have to stop trying to achieve God's approval and you simply receive God's approval in Jesus Christ, the one who died to redeem us. See, that's, that is why... 
That's what this book tells us is the reason why Jesus died on the cross. Romans 4.25, he was handed over to die, Jesus was, because of our sins, and he was raised from the dead to make us right with God. Knowing God personally means knowing him as your redeemer. So many people have the wrong idea about Christianity. They really think that Christianity is basically good advice on how to really try hard to live the best possible life you can live and maybe God will accept you. That is so not it. Christianity is not good advice. It's good news. It's good news. It's not you trying to be good enough for God. It's you trusting Jesus, your Redeemer, to make you good enough for God. He does it. We don't. I love what Pastor Sam Albury says about the gospel. He says he grew up and he always thought that Christianity was basically God rewarding good people. That's what he thought it was. God rewarding good people. And there are plenty of people today who think that. And then he realized one day it's not that at all. It's not about God rewarding good people. It's about God being kind to bad people. People who admit they're bad. People who know they don't measure up. People who know they've fallen short. People who do the things they know God can't possibly approve of. And they realize it and they admit it. And instead, they receive God's approval as a free gift in Jesus Christ. That's the message. The approval that Jesus earned for us through his life, death, and resurrection. And if you've never understood that, you just have got to understand that. And maybe today, I don't know, maybe the Spirit of God is turning the light on for you. And you realize all this time you thought it was about you trying harder, trying harder, trying harder to be good enough. It's not that. It's trusting Jesus to make you good enough and to receive his full approval as a gift. Being right with God is a gift. It's a glorious truth. This book teaches that. Look at these verses. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe. Trust in him. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus. To all who received him, to those who trusted in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Bible thumper, look at me. That's what this book is good for. That's why this book is more valuable than much fine gold, sweeter than honey. In this book, you encounter the true and living God who wants to be, who wants to be your rock and your redeemer, personally. You make that choice. It's not my parents' rock, my parents' redeemer. My church's rock, my church's redeemer. My friend's rock, my friend's redeemer. My rock, my redeemer. Because I receive him as what he offers himself to be for me. Knowing God personally, that's what this book's good for. Knowing Him as your rock, knowing Him as your redeemer, knowing Him as a person. 
So we get to know it in order to get to know him. Just a minute, I'm going to pray, but I do want to remind you of the challenge we've had for the past month, because really this is meant to be ongoing. This is not just, oh, okay, series is over, I guess I don't do that anymore. No, bring it to worship, read it, study it, receive it. Get to know God as your rock and your redeemer. That's how he wants you to know him. So you can declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let's pray. And before I pray, I just want to say, if today you realize you don't really know him as your rock, you're putting your confidence for security in something else, or you don't know him as your redeemer, you're just trying to be a good person, uh, you have not yet admitted how far short you fall of his standards, and you haven't received Jesus as God's gift to make you right with himself, I just want to say, today could be the day. You just have to admit you've been wrong and you need him, and invite him. Receive the gift he offers you, wrapped up in the person of Jesus. And if you want to talk more about it, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. Father in heaven, uh, what, a, what a marvelous gift you've given us. Lord, you didn't just give us a bunch of words. You have given us yourself. You have given us the way that we can know you, the way we can relate to you. So thank you. Help us just value this book the way we should. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.